Welcome to Inside College Admission. My name is Peter Van Buskirk, and today I'm joined by Rick Clark, who's the Director of Undergraduate Admission at Georgia Tech. Welcome, Rick. Thanks for having me, Peter. I'm glad you could steal away for a few minutes here in the middle of uh, the April wonder of who's going to come to see us, uh, who's going to enroll now that you've sent out your admission decisions. Has it been a, a crazy month so far? It has, yes. No, no question about it. I mean, probably like most people in my seat, I check the numbers too often. <laughs> uh, which is not 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 wise, not good for your blood pressure. But yeah, they just uh, they just keep flip flopping, you know, keep flip flopping back and forth on this year versus last year. So uh, man, I, what do I know at this point? Well, it, one of the interesting things about this time of year is that while you're watching carefully to see who among the admitted students will enroll, you're dealing with another round of soon to be seniors, soon to be college applicants. Who are trying to get their ducks in order and in order to be ready to apply and one of the big issues for a lot of these folks is testing now the last year or so has been a real tough time for anybody wanting to do testing because testing centers have been closed in many parts of the country so that's led to a lot of changes in the way testing is manifest now in the admission process and we'll get to that in a moment but i'm wondering rick if you could kind of help us establish some foundational understanding of, of what testing is all about. And when, when a selective institution or even a non-selective institution is looking at candidates, why bother telling a student you need to take an SAT or an ACT? What's in the test? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a good question. And I think it does vary, obviously, from school to school. And, and that's our job, right, is to try to figure out what are those things in an application or about a student's background that are predictive in helping feel confident that a student's going to do well on your campus. So certainly, you know, I think there are plenty of colleges and universities out there that can make a pretty good case if they've done their studies and looked at the uh, analysis where they can see some correlation between performance on these tests and ultimately performance on that specific campus. Obviously, there are many who even pre-pandemic had determined that wasn't true you know, that, that it wasn't correlative, or it was certainly not absolutely necessary, that there were enough other factors they could pull in to give them that same confidence. Let's take a look at, at the, the evolution, if you will, of the testing. We don't need to get in, in the weeds on all of that evolution, but of the test, the SAT, the ACT, the SAT has the longest history, and its, it's history is more rooted in a, a sort of a, a logic and reasoning uh, format. The ACT came along now about 60 years ago, different kind of test. But can you help us understand what the differences are, the fundamental differences are between the two tests? Well, I mean, I think there is evolution there, right? Because yeah. it, was, it was easier, you know, pre-new SAT, or I can't remember, you know, what the, what the marketing term for that was exactly. But you're right. I mean, there was a dichotomy at some point. And what we would coach students on is, listen, if you're more content driven, then the ACT could be a better path for you to go. And, you know, with the science section of the ACT, you know, there's going to be some other components that could pull in and highlight some of your strengths versus, and again, generalizing, kind of that critical reasoning, a little bit more, uh, let's say, logic or deductive reasoning of the of the SAT, less about necessarily what you've been exposed to and more about some of the, the skills of deducting to an answer, eliminating bad answers, you know, that kind of thing. So 
I do think, though, that, you know, interestingly, the year after the ACT had more Americans take it than the SAT, the SAT quickly pivoted, and those tests look a lot more similar than they ever have before. They're evolving um, toward each other rather than away from each other. That's correct. That's correct. And, and now it's, what, 10 years, approximately, that every institution in the country will accept either. Yeah. That's still correct? That's right. And, and exactly for that reason, I think, because the, the differences between them just aren't that great. Now, we're talking to presumably young people who are finishing the junior year, maybe some finishing the sophomore year. They know testing is on the horizon. What is your advice to that young person when they haven't taken a test yet? They haven't taken the PSAT. You know, they're getting some pressure to do something to practice here or practice there. What, from your experience, seems to be a good uh, approach for young people? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and I, I do sympathize with how it's gotten confusing, even more confusing maybe than it had been in the past, right? Because this is the test is something we've said constantly is important. It's one of many factors is certainly how we've talked about it, but hey, it's always a factor. And now all of a sudden I can hear if I'm a 16 or 17 year old, you know, optional means optional. What does that, you know, what does that really mean? Is, is that really true? I think the big thing that I, and as we've talked to students, you know, the, the message that we've been given is, listen, you know, it does vary from one school to the next. One of the things that I've heard you know, as advice presented to students regarding testing at the outset is try one of each, the SAT and ACT, and see which test suits you best. Because again, every college will take either or both, and then focus on one of them, not necessarily taking both the SAT or the ACT you know, ad infinitum. Is, is that squaring with, with your sense of the, of the process as well? Yes, 100%. You, you, you harked on the test optional situation, and prior to the COVID experience that we've all been part of for the last 14 months, there were just more than a thousand colleges and universities that publicly acknowledged that they could make good decisions about whom to admit without test results. And that number jumped by about 60% over the last 12 months or so. And it's, I was interested to hear you say that you're not convinced that many of those schools are going to go back. Many of them framed their move as an experiment. And I guess the experiment is ongoing now. But you, you also suggested we're at an inflection point where the way colleges think about credentialing students in this process and what's really important is, is taking on a lot of different looks. There, there are a lot of different types of intelligence that are being measured in some way or another these days too. So testing, it's there, you got to do it, but it may look different in the, the not too distant future. Yeah, I mean, you know, especially too, there's some big influencers in this, in this ecosystem. I mean, you look at the California system as an example, and not only do you have obviously tens of thousands of kids a year who for their system are not going to be required to take the test, at least for the foreseeable future and possibly never again, you know, other universities, because California exports a lot of students are going to have to respond to that. And there is going to be, I think, a a trickle down, you know, effect as a result. So now we've got kids saying about tests, can I afford to take it or can I afford not to take it? Yeah. <laughs> now, maybe you can help us sort this out a little bit because over the last 10 years or so, we've seen the advent of something called score choice, which means that students need to be reminded that when they've taken a test of any type, they own the result and that result shouldn't go to any entity without their authorization. 
Can you allow your, your credentials to be mined, if you will, by colleges for recruiting purposes, yet withhold them for admission purposes? Yes. And I think that's one of the important messages that's really not out there much at all, and certainly not out there to students who are, I guess, less resourced or less, you know, kind of well counseled. And I honestly don't know how to convey <laughs> with, you know, the gravity of, you know, authenticity, I think that it's going to take to convince people that, you know, yes, the technology systems that we use are in fact smart enough <laughs> to allow you to be messaged to recruited, communicated with up until a point. And then when your application is submitted and you check the box saying, no, I don't want you to look at my score. It is absolutely possible to redact that, not look at that, and, and never have it into the conversation. So that is something that we're actually looking at putting into our presentations to demonstrate to families how you know these systems, while they may kind of fall under the same umbrella, the, what an admission counselor sees in the review of an application is different than maybe how and where information is held to message a student as a prospect, right? Uh, totally different. And so that is, I think that's a really important point that um, I'm really hopeful we can kind of proliferate as a, as a message to families and convince them that it's genuine. And then your status at Georgia Tech with test option, you've gone that route? No. Not, not yet. And tell us why. Yep, absolutely. Here, here's another important message, I think, and something the pandemic has shown a light on at least to an extent, is local control versus system control. And you know, if you're a if you're a private school, whether you're a private high school or a private college, you get to set your tuition, you get to make your policies, you get to kind of be who you want to be. That's the local control. That's that's local control. That's on campus control. Mm -hmm. If you are part of a public system, then like today, for instance, our Board of Regents set tuition for the entire system for next year. We had we did not have a say in that, right? So, so they set our tuition. Now, in this case, they left it where it was, thankfully. So there's no increase in tuition next year. But that is made at the system level. Similarly, with test optional as just one more example, that is going to be the case. So we are in wait and see mode. Uh, mm -hmm. We can convey to them the data. We can help them understand but ultimately, you know, the, the decision will rest there. And, and that is where I would say the anomaly is going to occur. I do think we're at an inflection point, but I think you're going to see some of these Southern systems mm -hmm. who are often tied either in their lotteries or in their merit-based awarding of financial aid, very tied to testing and not pivoting away from that. Well, that's an interesting point you make there at the end. It, that even at schools that might be test optional in the admission process, if they have a merit scholarship program of any sort, they'll still want to sneak the test in there. They want to take a look. Why do you think that is? I think that there is just a belief, you know, that that testing is 100% objective, standardized, and uniform, and it is the one and only level versus you know, one school versus another have different grading scales, different weighting, different quality of teachers, you know, all the different nuances that occur 
right? From school to school, grade inflation, all the other things that we're kind of well aware of versus what many would perceive to be the great leveler of, of testing. Um, not my personal opinion, but I do think that that is the common answer that you hear from sort of the powers that be who are often adhering to uh, that type of merit-based awarding. So juniors, if you're trying to figure out your test strategy right now, and you're hearing that a lot of schools are test optional, and you're thinking, well, I don't have to take a test for them, then you're hearing that the system-based schools will require them, and you want to apply to some flagship state universities. Okay, got it. Got to take it there. And uh, you're also maybe looking at maybe exclusively a private school list, but then some of them have a merit program that requires the testing. Uh, it probably does make sense then from the outset to at least cover yourself. Correct me if I'm wrong, cover yourself with some testing at the outset here, just, just in case you need it. I would agree with that. I would, I would absolutely agree with that. And then I think as, you, as you've pointed out, once you start to apply, you know, then it's going to then, and this is again where, yes, your list could include a variety, Absolutely. and right, and and um, and so you may choose to have your tests included at one place, even if they are optional, based on what you're seeing in their profile, right? I mean, and I think the conventional wisdom has been, look, if you're if you're looking at a middle fifty percent range, and you're at middle fifty or, or you know at that fifty percent range or higher, send it. I'm not. You know, I think that that's at least what you're hearing oftentimes said. So if you have a good balanced list that has a range of selectivity, even if six of your schools are test optional, it could be that you're sending it to three because you want that looked at and, and not sending it to three. I mean, I, I've been using the metaphor of a stool where it's like, you know, look, if it's optional, then I've got five pegs on this stool. You know, I've got my GPA, I've got my letters of recommendation, I've got my extracurricular stuff, I've got testing, you know, do I want weight put on that leg or not? And in some cases I may, and in, in other cases, you know, I might not. I wanna have more weight put on those other factors. What is a super score? And this is something that, that has again evolved over the last 10 or so years. I think that the premise of a super score has been out there, but now we have a name for it. Can you help folks understand what the super score will be? So super scoring is the concept of benefit of the doubt, right? That instead of testing being like a football game, like one Saturday, four hours, and, and that's it. We're trying to look over maybe quote the season, right? Where you took the test three times, we're going to pull in your highest possible combined scores. So maybe that, let's just stick for now with the, with the SAT, uh, critical reading on one, and then, you know, that, or EBRW, I guess, is technically the, the, <laughs> the section there. And then math, you know, in September, right? So I got my May EBRW, somehow that goes down in September, but my math is higher. Well, you know, I'm pulling those two together. And here's another important message to families is if a school says they super score, they do. <laughs> you know, I really wish that we could give them some kind of Jedi mind signal here to, to indicate we're being honest about that. But, you know, look, our systems, we write the algorithms behind this. It pulls in the ones that we wanted to pull in. It leaves out the ones that we don't. This is why it's so easy to redact scores entirely or to write code so that the math comes in here if it's higher and the critical reading comes in there if it's higher, puts it together and, and there's your super score. So, so the student who may have taken the SAT three times, uh, and and maybe the I'm, I'm going to go with the old school verbal because I the EBRW is <laughs> tongue twisted on that. But let's suppose the verbal score was best the first time out, and the math score was best the last time out. 
the student sends all three to the institution and the institution then presents the reader of the application with only the best scores, not the three sets. Is that, is that correct? Or That's, is it that is hundred percent correct. And yeah. I think that's really important because, you know, even in talking to friends, right. In my neighborhood, not kids were recruiting and not students in information sessions, but just, just, you know, regular people, they doubt that that's true. You know, they've really expressed some doubt. And what I try to convince them is think about the thousands and thousands of applicants, right. To these, to these schools. And now if each kid took the test two or three times, now that's just order of magnitude. We do not have time to be looking through all that. If we tell you we're super scoring, that's exactly what we're doing. And, you know, we're not sitting there trying to hold it against you that, you know, the, the one <laughs> math was a little bit lower or something like that. It's just, yeah. it's just not the way that it works. Now, when a student submits an application, and I, re again, realize many applications are different, but uh, is it possible for the student to do the super scoring when they actually complete the application and send it in? Or do they need to supply all data and then the institution creates the super score? Or is it going to vary? It can vary. One thing that Georgia Tech, you know, went to as just one example, we're not alone in this a couple of years ago was, and partly this has to do with finances and trying to keep students from having to pay to send additional scores, is we said, look, you can self-report these, right? And so we, we, we provide that opportunity for a student to self-report uh, their testing. That means that they can both say every time they took it in their individual scores, as well as they can themselves have a section where they can super score, right? So they can do it for us, um, even though obviously we're fully capable of that ourselves, but it, it allows for that. Now, will they, will they need to submit upon acceptance or enrollment, will they need to submit official scores to verify discrepancies between what's self-reported and the official scores? Yep, that's right. And, you know, we the only reason Georgia Tech really has has done that, because we've done this for several years, right? So we've we've proven that the students are very accurate in their in their reporting. We would go away from it, honestly, if it weren't for our system. But our system requires that actual official information to be submitted to them. And so, uh, you know, that's the only reason we would say if a kid is ultimately admitted, chooses to come, then they need to send the, uh, the official scores. Rick, what's your experience with the timing of tests? Let's suppose a student, and to throw a hypothetical out here, a student takes the PSAT October the junior year, uh, gets a result back in December and immediately signs up for the SAT in January, gets a result that's not quite what he wants, takes it again in March, still not quite, then again in May. Is, is that a good sequence, do you think? I mean, it sounds brutal to me. Me uh, too. <laughs> You know, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of data and research out there about, you know, the sort of the diminishing returns, right, after after retakes, you know, it varies a little bit, but typically that's the kind of threshold, right, is after after the third take, if there's not been anything different done, right, if, if the preparation or the, you know, content received is, is no different, then there's a diminishing uh, return typically on that. So I would say that, Taking the test three times over a period of, call it a year to uh, a year and some change, that seems like a reasonable cadence to me. However, I would say that if after that second time, you know, they're not seeing, as you said, sort of the, the results that they wanted to, I would say it's probably time to take some kind of like action to see change um, versus just more time 
in class or whatever else they're going to kind of naturally be learning outside of, you know, intentional preparation. It occurs to me, though, that one of the variants that can contribute to improvement in testing mm-hmm. is time. These tests are really created for kids who've reached the uh, start of the junior year in high school, and they're continuing to have exposure to things in the classroom and out of the classroom that grow their knowledge base and their ability to, to reason information. So the more time they allow themselves in those intervals between tests, they, they can perhaps improve their scores as well. Is, 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 is that a good logic or is that? I would, uh, no, I would agree with that, especially, I think, as it relates to the math. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and content received. So, you know, I think that there again, you know, if, if, if within a year to slightly over a year, you know, you're, you're looking at three different takes that again, that seems like a very reasonable cadence to me versus that, you know, for instance, like, you know, three months in a row or something without any type of quote corrective or different interaction. At the same time, I mean, I still, I do think if, if, as you say, a couple months pass, you've taken it the second time and you're not pleased or not seeing the results you want, I think it's at that point that you should at least assess, um, you know, is there other kind of outside preparation that you need to do in addition to maybe what, what you're being exposed to in the classroom to get those results that you're looking for? Now, you've mentioned a couple of times outside preparation. Years yeah. ago, the, the college board in particular would argued vehemently that there wasn't any kind of outside preparation that would change the results of tests. I think now the college board's even agreed that the DTS has agreed that that can be the case. Mm-hmm. Is, is it a reasonable thing to expect that students who have access to test prep of some type uh, participate in it, that, uh, that it, it, it's really not sort of corrupting the, the pool of information? Well, I mean... I think we've seen enough evidence that test preparation boosts test scores mm-hmm. and students who have the resources to, to do that are, are getting higher, higher scores than they would have gotten otherwise. It doesn't mean that there's a student who never had any test preparation who couldn't make an equivalent score, but that individual student with test preparation is likely to see <laughs> increased results. And so in that regard, it's not the great leveler that, again, as we were just talking about earlier, it's not completely standard because there are outside influencers, um, you know, into the into the testing. But, but I think it's it's also established, isn't it, that that a student might expect to see a certain increment of improvement from the first to the second test, even without test prep. Just that's true. Uh, so be patient with yourself, I guess, is is a, an observation to pursue there. Before we wrap up, I kind of like to take a look at the new developments. Uh, We we talked about things evolving, but the College Board made some announcements in the last several months about changes with regard to the essay, with regard to subject tests. Uh, Last year, the ACT had made some announcements with regard to how it was going to administer tests. Can you maybe in summary form, give us a sense of what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, well, let's see. So, of course, the essay going away is... Not a huge shock. I mean, obviously, you know, there's resources on the college board side that were, I guess, not sustainable. And then on the college side, I mean, there wasn't demand. And so it just, it just didn't make any sense to, to keep that. Mm-hmm. I think obviously subject tests would be the other kind of big piece here. Again, sunsetting subject tests. And what that really points to, in my opinion, is, you know, the college board effectively doubling down on APs 
Mm. And I think that's going to be really interesting to watch here in the years ahead. Any thoughts on ACT developments uh, where the students taking subsequent tests can just sit for a particular element of the ACT rather than the whole SAT? Well, I mean, that goes back to... It goes back to what you said earlier about just this just this concept of I think your word was like either spoiling or corrupting, you know, the the pool, right? I mean, not only do you have students who are either financially or time-wise able to take it multiple times, you have students that are able financially and otherwise to pay for test prep. And now you have students that are able time-wise and financially to focus just on one section. So, you know, this again is where I think schools have to be cognizant of how they're using these tests and, you know, how they're going to evaluate their applicant pool in an equitable way, knowing that these type of uh, strategies or options are available to students. It is indeed complicated. It is. You warned us of that at the outset. And uh, Rick, I'm I'm delighted that we could have this conversation because I, I, I could sense with each topic we approach, you're able to kind of tease out greater clarity for those who are, are trying to figure out what to or how to make sense of testing in their preparation for the college application process. So thank you so much for taking some time away from a rather chaotic spring, I suspect, to, to have this conversation with us. And then folks who are listening in, uh, I, I, I'm sure you're, you're going to find some real value in, the, in Rick's reflections on the, the testing environment we see right now. So thank you again. Be well, everybody. Rick, I hope we can get you back sometime. Sounds good. I appreciate you having me. All right. Take care, everybody.